Thanks be to God. Well, good to see you all today. Our seven-year-old started playing piano a few months ago. She's still at the stage where she is unable to practice on her own. Practicing is very much a joint affair because she hasn't quite mastered the basics enough to practice on her own. But while I've been practicing with her, I've noticed on occasion that she will be playing a piece, and if she successfully navigates a particularly tricky part in the music, she will quickly glance up at me to ensure that I have witnessed her finesse. And so I have an opportunity to then offer, you know, some facial or even verbal affirmation. It really is cute and, and so endearing, but it also means that she has to spend a moment then finding her place in the music again. And I, I get it. I do something similar when Nanette gets home just after I have completed a load of laundry. Do you, do you see my finesse in what I have done? No, but seriously, th this is very normal, especially with children. Kids long to be noticed and I actually think it's one way we can serve and, and value children. I'm sure many parents or caregivers have noticed an immediate and noticeable change in a child's demeanor if during playtime or one-on-one -on -one time we do something as simple as put our phones away, right? That offer that undivided attention. Children desire and I think deserve that sort of care and attentiveness. I, I don't think a desire to be known or a desire to be noticed is inherently unhealthy. I think it's normal and can even be very good, especially in the context of childhood. In fact, I hope to be the sort of dad that, that truly notices and, and sees my children delighting in who they are. However, as we age, as we mature, I want to suggest that we must think critically about the following question. By whom am I hoping to be noticed and why? By whom am I hoping to be noticed and why? So to consider this question, we're going to return to the Sermon on the Mount. We have now made it to Matthew chapter 6 after taking a couple of week break for Palm Sunday and uh, Easter last week. And we're going to take another break over the next two weeks as Warren will be speaking for us and then Austin and we'll return to this chapter in May. But for now, we begin in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, where Jesus says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. 
Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. We'll actually jump down to verse 14 since we prayed the Lord's Prayer together a few moments ago. And we're actually planning to do a more in-depth study on that prayer later this summer in coordination with the kids' curriculum, which will lead them through that prayer. So down in verse 14, after the prayer, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So through this first half of Matthew chapter 6, three spiritual activities come into view. And though the following principle surely applies more broadly, the three practices Jesus highlights are fasting, prayer, and almsgiving or charity. Now, my hope today is not to offer an exhaustive treatment of those practices, which would be an impossible feat, but rather to consider the intention or the motivation behind any and all spiritual practices we engage in, which I think is a really important conversation for us to have because I think for many, a good deal of motivation in life in general can grow from a desire for approval. It sort of permeates life. I think we see it on a grand scale as corporations will, I don't know, maybe pick up a social cause. I think ultimately for approval because at a corporate level, approval translates into increased revenue and disapproval may mean a financial hit. I think that is a primary motivating factor a lot of times for corporations. On an individual level, though, it may not be increased revenue or financial capital, but maybe it has more to do with social capital. We're looking for approval for approval's sake. Whatever the case, Jesus seems to say, that's fine if you perform to gain approval, It doesn't seem to be innately sinful necessarily, but if you perform to secure approval, just know that's all you'll get. You've received your reward. Now, Jesus is very honest here. He doesn't say there is no reward in practicing acts of righteousness in front of others. There may very well be a reward, but if receiving that reward is your motive... You're paid in full when you have received it. There is no outstanding balance. But he goes on, remember, there is a greater reward. The reward that comes from the Father. Our Father knows us inside and out. He sees what occurs in secret. And Jesus promises will reward righteousness that occurs in secret. Now, our goal today is not to really comment on the nature of that reward other than to 
affirm our trust that whatever that reward entails, it will greatly exceed any fleeting reward we may receive in the present moment. So Jesus invites us here to think more deeply, I think, about our desire for approval and why that is always going to be a futile game that in the end means very little. It's a futile game primarily because approval from others is fleeting. It only lasts as long as you continue to impress, and that goalpost is constantly moving. In best case scenario, even if we play all of our cards right, maybe even pull the wool over some eyes to convince others that we are better, more intelligent, more accomplished and distinguished than we actually are, even if we can keep up that charade for the entirety of our lives, which is unlikely, but we'll go there for the sake of argument. If we can keep up that charade the entirety of our lives, at death, who, who cares? It means nothing. At death, even a legacy that lives beyond our life doesn't matter all that much to the one who has died. At that point, really the only thing that matters is the father who has seen in secret. Maybe you've heard that language used to describe acts of righteousness or acts of worship that are done for God alone. It's sort of the audience of one language. Have you heard that language? It was really big in 90s youth group culture, which is probably why I'm so familiar with it. We, we worship or we serve for an audience of one. It's actually a phrase that was used at times to describe the, the Puritans because there, there was no superficiality or performance in their worship or righteous acts. Um, but it's actually an idea that we pr find presented throughout our scriptures. Are we trying to please God or are we trying to please others. There, there's an interesting story in John chapter 12 where Jesus is addressing the continued disbelief that persisted, even though he was doing all of these incredible signs. But then John makes this comment in, in describing the words of Jesus, and he says, though a lot of people were disbelieving, uh, many, even of the authorities, started to believe, but they were afraid to profess that belief lest they be expelled from the synagogue. And John comments on this by saying, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Or we might think of that story in Acts chapter 5 when Peter and other apostles are arrested and questioned because they refuse to, to stop talking about Jesus. And Peter and the other apostles respond to this line of questioning by saying, we must obey God rather than man. I think this small sampling of stories sort of brings that question to the forefront of our minds. From whom are we seeking approval? Are we after the glory of God or the glory of man? This is a perennial temptation, I think, that we would long for man's approval instead of God's. And I think it's one of the things at the heart of the issue in this section from the Sermon on the Mount. We do, in fact, have an audience of one when it comes to our righteous acts. Now, I do think there is a needed qualification because this language of an audience of one can be twisted into an entirely individualistic spirituality. 
And this can filter down and affect everything in our lives. It can even shape how we maybe approach a worship service. So, you know, let's turn all the lights off because I don't need to see anybody else. Let's blast the music because I don't need to hear anybody else. Um, And I get that these can be aesthetic choices and that's fine, but aesthetics do communicate deeper beliefs. So I, I don't need to see or hear my neighbor because this is my personal time with God, right? I am worshiping for an audience of one. This is about me and Jesus. In this context, it's actually not. This is a communal time. And I get that that's a very minor example, but I don't think it's unimportant. But there is a much more dangerous um, outcome when an individualistic view of spirituality takes root. It is possible that that entirely individualistic view of spirituality would lead us to completely disregard the opinions or thoughts of others. I don't care what you think. I am doing this for an audience of one. It is about me and Jesus. You have no permission to speak into my life and challenge me because I'm not interested in your approval. I'm only interested in the approval of God's. Only trying to please God. But I think that's an unhelpful extreme in this conversation because God has invited us into community, into a body, into a family, a place of deep connection. And I can't understand myself outside of the context of that interconnectedness. I want to be willing to invite others to speak into my life when it comes to weighty spiritual matters, or maybe even practical matters, decisions that Nanette and I are making for our family. I want to be willing to invite others into that process because I know that I don't see everything clearly. I might need some thoughtful outside perspective even as I'm making a decision. The point is that this teaching from Jesus cannot be understood as an excuse to build walls that protect us from vulnerable, challenging relationships with others. Christian spirituality cannot be reduced to my personal relationship with Jesus. That's part of it, but it's not the entirety. Now, the other side of that coin, again, we find Jesus addressing in the sermon. We don't live to gain approval from others. We don't invite others into relationship in order to gain approval because we don't find our worth in securing that approval. Our worth and value is in the fact that we are loved by God. We are his children. He has welcomed us into his family. Nothing more, nothing less. This is a little bit of the tension we feel in this instruction. This might be helpful in in wrapping our minds around it. New Testament scholar Dale Bruner suggested that a very literal translation of the first verse of this passage might be something like this. Be careful not to do your righteousness in front of others in order to be theatered to them. This idea of theatrical righteousness performance, this is the air we breathe culturally. Every good deed that I conduct, every good thought, all correct opinions I have must be broadcast to a huge audience because everybody needs to know 
what I'm about. The question for us to consider is, in all of these aspects of life, are we performing? Are we performing? And if we are, why? What is the cause for that? And if we are performing, if a lot of our actions and words are coming from that posture of performance, it is, I think, according to the words of Jesus in the sermon, it is hypocrisy. You know, typically when I think of hypocrisy, I think of maybe an inconsistency between public and private life. Or I think of expecting others to live one way while I live the opposite way. And I think that is a part of it. But hypocrisy, strictly speaking, is more broad. It is performance. An act doesn't have to be disingenuous to be performative. It can be a genuine representation of what is important to us, but if the goal in that act is to receive praise, that is when it becomes performative, and again, I think according to Jesus, hypocritical. Now, another tension we find in the words of Jesus here, actually tension with something that was said earlier in the sermon, because if you remember back in chapter 5, Jesus said, you are salt and light. Right? And part of that is to be noticeable. In fact, he explicitly said, let your lights shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father. So perhaps these statements seem to be in tension with one another. But remember, we also noticed that back in chapter 5, a key difference was that the lifestyle Jesus was inviting his followers into, a lot of times that was the, the subtle characteristics that even seemed very unimpressive to the world around, but was maybe subtly attractive. And I think this is a key difference between the instruction in chapter 5 and what we find here, because the acts of righteousness Jesus is addressing here are explicitly done because they are perceived to be impressive. And I think that is where we find the interpretive key. Are we doing this because it seems impressive to others. And Jesus seems completely disinterested in that sort of self-righteousness. You know, I think a pursuit of righteousness in this way, if we have these words of Jesus in mind, can actually become a dangerous type of unrighteousness. In fact, Martin Luther suggested that righteousness could actually become as damaging as sin because it can serve the most self-centered of all human desires, and that is the desire for self-glorification. Again, are we performing in order to earn approval? Now, prayer, fasting, and charity, these three acts of righteousness that Jesus points to, these were really the three primary righteous acts in Judaism. And they are good, and I think should be pursued in the life of faith. The problem is that they can morph into tools that are used to prop ourselves up, to earn praise, to garner respect. I mean, look at how much they give. 
Look at the charitable causes they support. They must be a really great person. Or look at how much they pray. They must be really close to God. Or have you ever fasted food? That's really difficult, but they are so serious about their faith that they are willing to do it. Do we present an ideal version of ourselves in order to earn respect? This is me. See me? Notice me? Don't you want to know me? And I think this permeates a lot of life. I mean, this is Twitter. Right? It, it is often performed. And, and I'm not so cynical to think that that's all that takes place on social media, but I do think this is a temptation that we, at the very least, need to be aware of. Are we performing? And if we determine that this is performance, what is behind that? What is pushing me to that posture? So that's the difficult question we need to ask, but... If we think about this passage, Jesus has offered us a way out of this debilitating obsession with what others think, or an obsession with improving our image, or improving our likability. Now, admittedly, it is difficult to not be conscious, especially for somebody with my personality type. It is difficult to not be conscious about how our actions or our words are landing with others. And I don't think that's, I think that can be a part of developing emotional intelligence. The question is, do we obsess over image management? Is that what we're constantly thinking about? And Jesus says, don't releases us from that need to manage our image. He says, concern yourself instead with the only approval that lasts. And in order to do that, he says, practice your righteousness, practice your restorative justice in this way. When you pray, go to your room. Pray simple prayers that get at the heart of what's going on. Shut your door so that you're aware only of the presence of God, not what others think. When you fast, don't announce it. Don't even let others know. Go to the spa if you need to, to freshen up so that you're not concerned with what others think about your fasting. Instead, focus on a growing awareness of the presence of Jesus in your practice. Maybe a trip to the spa is actually the incentive some of you are looking for to consider fasting. And if so, there you go. That is a free gift. When you give, don't announce it. In fact, Jesus says, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand does. Charity, almsgiving, restorative justice in this way is noble and, and very important work, but it isn't about the one who is giving. There are benefits that come to us in the act of giving, but if we make it about us, we miss the point. So not only is working to impress others a futile endeavor, but we also must not become too impressed with ourselves. Charity, generous living, that doesn't put me in right standing with God. So 
in this act, am I impressed by my own righteousness? If I am, there is a problem. So when you give, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is offering. In other words, as Dale Bruner said, Jesus wants to liberate us from having to be impressive to anyone, including ourselves. It is a very freeing thought. Not only do I not have to work to impress anybody externally, but I don't have to strive to be impressive to myself. Now, this is why I think this is of critical importance for those who follow Jesus. Yes, there is that reward piece. We've received our reward. We shouldn't expect a reward in the age to come. But I think there's something else that is worth considering, and that is the longer we buy into our own impressiveness and try to convince others to be impressed by us, the more we open ourselves to misunderstanding the crux of the gospel. Because the gospel is not look how good and spiritual or righteous or look how concerned with justice I am. I am so great. God must be extra pleased with me and and you should be pleased as well. That's a fundamental alteration to the gospel. So perhaps a worthwhile question for us to routinely ask. Actually, I've, I've listed some of the questions that I have encouraged us to think about throughout our time together. You can read through those top ones as a refresher. But the final one for us to routinely ask, is this act that I am engaging in, is this opinion that I hold, are these words that I'm speaking, is this demeanor promoting in me an ego swell? In doing this, am I feeling a rush of self-importance? These might be some very telling questions. The gospel is God shows us his love while we were still sinners, dead in trespasses, as we talked about last week. In those darkest moments of our lives, Christ died for us. This is the liberating effect of the gospel. We can abandon the charade. We can stop the righteous theater. Note, I did not say abandon righteousness, but the theatrical performative impulse can be let go. Jesus has delivered us from the need to be impressive to anyone, including ourselves. Thanks be to God. I want to invite you to stand. We're going to celebrate this reality of the gospel, this liberating effect, even for us personally, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're gathering around this table, joining in this meal, the cup and the bread. And I believe we meet with Jesus in this moment in a special way, invite you into this moment. The only requirement to come to this table is a desire to meet with Jesus. And I believe that in this meal, as we meet with Jesus, something can happen in us. And I would encourage you as you come to accept this freeing reality of the gospel. 
I don't have to perform. I don't have to impress for others or for myself. I am freely receiving the gift that Christ has bestowed on us. Thanks be to God. I want to say a prayer and then I'll invite you to the table. We'll make two lines down these center aisles and then you can peel to the outside aisles. When you get to the front, the words will be spoken over you. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Also, if you're in need of prayer, we invite you. Um, Jim and Chris will be in the back corner. Um, if there's a, a need in your life that you would like somebody to agree in prayer for, uh, see Jim and Chris in, in, in the back corner. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful. that that pressure to perform and to impress has been relieved. That our spiritual well-being, our health, is not about being impressive or looking good to others. pray that we would continue to move into this freedom, the freedom to be impressive to others, the freedom not to be impressive to ourselves. Give us grace to willingly accept your gift. So we pray, almighty and everlasting God, who in the Paschal mystery established the new covenant of reconciliation, grant that all who have been reborn into the fellowship of Christ's body may show forth in their lives what they profess by their faith. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord?